0: Thank you, Krista. Well, if you'd like to keep that passage open in front of you, and we'll look at that together, and as we do, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the time that we can spend in it now, Lord God. You know each of our hearts as we gather here together this morning, and uh, you know what we need to hear, and we praise and thank you that by your spirit you speak into our hearts, and so we pray. Uh, that you would do that now, that you would open our eyes to, to see you, that that um, our hearts would be ready to receive your word today. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been in the early uh, chapters of Acts, and we've been thinking about Jesus' call to his people to be his witnesses. Uh, I once heard the the story of a friend of a friend, an elderly chap, who took every opportunity he could to respond to that call. Whether it was between stops on a train journey or passing strangers in the street, he didn't want to waste a single chance to tell those he met about Jesus. He even requested to have his hip replacement done under local anesthetic because he didn't want to waste the opportunity of three hours of a captive audience. Now, if you're anything like me, then you might be more inclined to opt for a general anesthetic should you ever find yourself in that situation. And maybe the idea of sharing your faith at all is enough to bring you out in a cold sweat. Perhaps because you're concerned about how people might respond, or maybe because you're not uh, very sure what you would say. Well, as we've been studying these opening chapters in Acts, we've seen that wonderfully we are not expected to go it alone. The task that Jesus has called his church to is one that he has equipped them for. Over the last two weeks, we've seen that Jesus' call to his church to be his witnesses is preceded by a promise that they will receive power to answer that call. The power of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his followers, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, last week we saw that promise of power begin to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the church was empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness in the languages of those who were gathered in Jerusalem that day. And that same power is at work through his people today as we share our faith. But even if we know that we're not alone we might still be filled with trepidation because perhaps we just don't know where to start. We're not really sure what to say. Uh, Well, the passage that we're looking at today is wonderfully helpful in that regard because it gives us a model of what it is to share the gospel message, and it's a message that is all about Jesus. Last week, we saw Peter declare to the crowd in verse 21 that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But as the crowd gathered that day, they needed to know exactly who this Lord was if they were going to call on him for salvation. And it's at that point, that Peter introduces them to Jesus. And in his presentation, he highlights five key truths about Jesus that form the basis of the Spirit-empowered message that we've been given to share. And I just want us to take a little bit of time to look at those five truths so we know what we are to say when we share the good news of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, then this is a great opportunity to hear what the Christian message is about. And the first of those truths is that Jesus really existed. If you look with me at verse 22, Peter declares, "'Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth.'" Now, Peter begins by pointing to Jesus' hometown. And that is not a bit of insignificant detail. By mentioning where Jesus was from, Peter was grounding him in reality. He was speaking about a man who would have been known, whose existence could have been authenticated. Those in the crowd could have spoken to people from Nazareth who would have been able to say, yeah, he grew up around the corner. He, he was Joseph and Mary's son." Peter begins by affirming Jesus as a historical figure, a person who really existed, whose existence could be verified. When we share our faith, we are not sharing some abstract take-it-or-leave-it spirituality. We are talking about a real person who really existed and who had more impact on our planet than any other figure in human history. And that's because of the second truth that Peter declares. Not only is Jesus historical, he's anything but ordinary. He is divine. He goes on, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So Peter declares that Jesus was the one who was attested by God, one who was declared to be true and his authenticity was seen through his mighty works, through his miracles. The accounts of Jesus' life are littered with examples of the different miracles that Jesus performed, healing people, uh, walking on water, raising people from the dead. Uh, and, And Peter describes Jesus' miracles as signs. They were signposts that pointed to Jesus' true identity as the Son of God. The claim that the Bible makes is that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was God, the Son, who came into this world and took on human flesh. And his miracles pointed to that reality. And notice, his miracles were indisputable. Peter was able to appeal to the fact that the, that the crowd knew about them. What Jesus had done was common knowledge. At the very heart of the Christian message is the belief that God has come into this world, that God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He has shown us how to know him, how we are to relate to him, and that completely changes the playing field for every belief and worldview out there. If Jesus is God, then he is not one take it or leave it option among many. He is the only one who can offer salvation. He's the only one who can give us meaning to our lives at the deepest level. Peter speaks in verse 21 about the salvation that he gives, but how does he do that? Well, it's the third thing that Peter highlights here Jesus is historical, he's divine. And he came to save. And he did that by dying and rising to life again. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. According to Peter, Jesus came to die. Now, some claim that his death was a tragic mistake a failure to recognize the goodness and kindness of this great man. For others, Jesus' death is seen as a great moral example, the ultimate demonstration of loving self-sacrifice. But Peter is clear that Jesus' death was no accident or, or some demonstration of something. No, he died for a purpose. His death was all part of God's plan to save anyone who calls to him. As Peter recounts the death of Jesus, notice that he explains that Jesus died, verse 23, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus' death was part of God's eternal plan of salvation. It was part of God's purpose. But at the same time, that in no way negated the responsibility of those who crucified him. Peter describes them as lawless, as wicked men. Throughout the Bible, we see those two truths so often, side by side, even in the same verse, that God is in control, and at the same time, human beings are responsible for their actions. And though we might not be able to get our heads around that fully, it is clear that Peter affirms both of those truths here in this verse. The wonder of God's great plan of salvation is seen in that out of this terrible act of human wickedness, The crucifixion of the Son of God at the hands of lawless men, God in his sovereign purposes accomplished the greatest good that the world has ever known. And linked to Jesus' death is the fact of his resurrection. Peter goes on, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death was not the end for Jesus death could not hold him. The resurrection demonstrates Jesus' true identity. In verse 25 to 28, Peter quotes a prophecy uttered by uh, the Old Testament king, David. Uh, It's a prophecy that you can find in Psalm 16. And it's a prophecy about a king who would not be held by death. Peter quotes it and he goes on to explain in verse 29 that David couldn't possibly be speaking about himself. David was like every other king who had ever lived. He had died and was buried, and people could go and visit his grave if they wanted to. Peter explains that that David wasn't speaking about himself, but verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. David foresaw a day when one of his descendants would beat death and would be enthroned as the Christ, God's chosen eternal king. It's a prophecy that testifies to Jesus' true identity as the one who could not be held by death, the one who would rise to life again. And that's what Peter says, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. All Jesus' followers who were gathered there on the day of Pentecost, who had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, they could testify to Jesus' resurrection because they were witnesses to it. They'd seen him. They'd touched him. They'd spoken with him. And they'd even eaten with him. Jesus had beaten death. He was a living, breathing, physical person. You were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection standing before the crowd at that very moment. The Christian faith is not just wishful thinking. When we share the gospel, we are sharing a message that stands up to scrutiny. It's a message that we can have confidence in. It is based on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, people who were present that day who could testify to the truth. And many of those eyewitnesses, they died for their faith rather than deny what they had seen with their own eyes. Peter himself was executed for his commitment to the very truths that he proclaimed that day. The truth of the resurrection testified to the fact that Jesus was the promised king that the Jews had been waiting for, the one who would rule over God's people forever as God's exalted king. And that's the fourth truth that we learn about Jesus in Peter's proclamation. Peter says that as God's exalted king, verse 33, Jesus would pour out his spirit on his people. And here was that promise being fulfilled before their very eyes. The gift of the Spirit was proof that Jesus was the Christ. He was the promised King. The gospel message is that Jesus really lived, He really was God. He really did die and rise again. And the risen and ascended Jesus, He really comes to live inside his people by his Holy Spirit until one day he will return to judge. And that's the fifth thing that we see here in this passage. In verse 34 to 35, Peter quotes another prophecy of David, and it comes from Psalm 110. It's a prophecy that speaks of the judgment that this returning king will carry out as he sits at the right hand of God as the one who's been given all authority to rule and to judge. He will make his enemies his footstool. It's a picture of the judgment that all who have rejected him will one day face. Something that we have seen again and again in these early chapters of Acts are references to the judgment that Jesus will carry out when he returns. It's what makes sharing that the message that we've been given so urgent. So that people can call on the name of the Lord and be saved before it's too late. And in the climax of his sermon, it's what Peter urges his listeners to do by showing them their true condition in God's sight. He declares, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, to those listening that day, those words must have sounded incredible on the one hand, and terrible on the other. To hear that the the long-awaited Christ had finally come. To hear that all the promises of their Scriptures had been fulfilled in Him. The one who was both Lord and Christ, the ruler and king. Finally, it had all become clear. And then the realization that they were culpable in His death the one that they had been waiting for all these years, the one who they knew would return to judge his enemies, they had crucified the very one that they had been longing for, the one who'd come to save them, and they had killed him. And one day he would return to judge, and they would be found guilty in his sight. And as the realization dawned on them, we read verse 37, that they were cut to the heart. And here we see the power of God's Spirit at work as the message of Jesus is faithfully proclaimed. When we share the gospel, something supernatural happens. God's Spirit convicts. It brings people to a realization of their sin and of their need for Jesus. And that's exactly what happened with the crowd that day. Luke tells us, verse 38, that they cried out to Peter, "'What shall we do?' And Peter answers them, "'Repent and be baptized, every one of you, "'in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins.'" and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The call of the gospel is a call to repentance. It's a call to admit that we were wrong. And that's a very hard thing for proud hearts to do. But to repent, it's not simply an admission that we are wrong. It means a willingness to turn away from that wrong way of living, that that wrong way of thinking, and to reorientate our lives to a new way of living, a new way of thinking. Peter's call to repentance was a call to the crowd to lay down their crowns, to come off the throne of their lives and to humble themselves. It was a call to repentance that meant placing Jesus Christ the promised king on the throne of their hearts, turning from their sinful rebellion, submitting to his lordship, trusting in him, living as he desired, identifying with his people through baptism. That was the call of the gospel to them then. And it's the call to us now. The gospel is not limited to a set of truth propositions. It's the declaration of a person. And it's a call to give up living for ourselves and to live our whole lives for him. Now, we live in an age where radical individualism, where the idea that I am free to live how I please, is seen by many as the the highest good. And so a call to to give up our right to ourselves, to admit that we're wrong, and to submit to Jesus as Lord, it seems like the the kind of message that will just be rejected out of hand. But one of the many beautiful things about the gospel is that it's in its seeming foolishness that we can have great confidence. The early church leader Paul in his First letter to the church in Corinth explained in chapter 1, verse 18, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we proclaim Jesus Christ, we proclaim Him with power, the power of His Holy Spirit. And it's His Spirit who works in people's hearts, Drawing them to know the Lord Jesus, to respond to this call, to to see his grace and mercy, to, to find it irresistible compared to all the desires that there are in this world. And that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. We're told, verse 41 that in response to Peter's spirit-empowered proclamation of Jesus, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, 3,000 lives transformed as the message of Jesus was proclaimed with power. And God is still transforming lives by his Spirit today. When Jesus is proclaimed, God's spirit works. And this room is evidence of this fact. Small gathering of people here, come from all over the world, representing a tiny fraction of the more than 2 billion people on our planet today who call Jesus Lord. 2,000 years have come and gone since those events in Jerusalem. And God's church is still growing across the globe as more and more people respond to the invitation to call on the name of the Lord so that they can be saved. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Holy Spirit that your word is true, and that your spirit reveals that truth to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would give us great confidence in the gospel, great confidence that Jesus really did live. He really was God. He really did die and rise again. He really does give his spirit, and he will return to judge. Lord, we thank you that as we share that message, you change lives. We pray that not only would we see our lives changed, but we would see the lives of, of those around us transformed by this glorious message. We thank you for the evidence of it in this room. We thank you for the, the stories that are here today of, of people's lives who have been radically changed by this glorious news. We pray that we would see more and more of this in our midst and more and more of this in our church family, that you would shape us and renew us by your Spirit And as we come to this table now to take bread and wine, we pray that you would refresh our hearts as we are reminded of your grace and mercy in Christ. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.